The Irish poet Seamus Haney wrote, Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. So history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles, cures, and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain, or lightning and storm, and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. Hope. We begin the season of Advent every year by making the journey toward the manger, toward Christmas, waiting patiently or impatiently for Christmas to come with the theme of hope. And I have a confession to make. For years, I've sought to keep Advent holy and to keep Christmas well by engaging in acts of liturgical purity. You might call this confessions of a liturgical purist. I was one of those people who believed what the ancient theologians and doctors of the church taught us, that there are only 12 days of Christmas, as the song goes. Not 25 not 55, but 12. And that the Christmas season does not end, but begins on Christmas Eve. I was one of those people who did not put up my tree until mid-December, would not listen to Christmas music on the radio, refused to watch the Hallmark Channel, <laughs> and believed that we should not sing Christmas carols or hymns in church until Christmas Eve night. That got me in trouble at a few churches that I've pastored. Some might have called me a Grinch or a humbug, but I, I just love Advent. I love this season. I've always felt that properly leaning into this time of waiting and preparing and anticipating and expectation that the Advent season brings is the best way to truly appreciate the joy and the power that will come at the end of the season at Christmas. One of our former associate ministers, Reverend Mia McLean, and I have enjoyed teasing each other about this for years. You may have even heard us discuss it on a podcast at some point. Obviously, Mia also believes in Advent and liturgy like I do, but she also starts watching Hallmark Christmas movies on Halloween night <laughs> and turns on the Christmas music on November 1st and puts up the tree, it seems like, earlier and earlier every single year. And for years, I would smugly roll my eyes at her at this premature celebration, believing it to be comical, silly, even a little juvenile, I imagine that she was giving in to what I know a lot of us see as the excessive 
commercialization of Christmas, the conspicuous consumption of the season that, ex- that obscures the true meaning of the celebration and the holiday, often ruining the season. So I remained firmly grounded in my liturgical purity and my liturgical snobbery, teasing her about her love of Hallmark movies and music and putting up the tree till this year when everything changed for me. I think it was the horrific violence that we all saw in Israel and Gaza in the month of October. Something about experiencing all of that seemed to make the time change that came not long after and the loss of daylight and the nights getting longer and the days getting shorter a lot harder than in previous years. You may have had this similar experience. In fact, I may have been experiencing some form of seasonal affective disorder, that chemical change we know of in the brain that occurs when the winter comes and the daylight lessens and more darkness is in our lives. Whatever it was, this year, I felt compelled to put my tree up in November, which is the earliest I've ever done it in my life. And I was shocked. But Mia's point to me about celebrating Christmas early and earlier every year, I never really understood what she meant by that. Some say, she'd come to me and she'd say, Ben, this is the reason I do it. Life is so hard right now, so hard, that we need to grab onto any hope we can find and hold on to that hope anywhere we can find it. And so I don't wait for that hope to come. I grab it early. All my liturgical snobbery aside, we cannot judge people in this day and age for clinging to any semblance of hope in the midst of a hopeless world. Hope is in short supply these days. In fact, we're living in a world that is so desperate for hope now that people are literally dying from despair. In 2015, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, by economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton, sparked a national conversation about why premature death has become such a common feature of American life. Case and Deaton's research noted a sharp uptick in the number of deaths related to suicide, opioid overdose, and alcohol-related liver disease beginning around the turn of the millennium. Following their lead, other scholars came behind and found an increase also in gun-related deaths, as well as an increase in the child mortality rate, both of which far outpace all other countries like us. A team at the National Academy of Sciences found that a million more Americans... Think about that for a second. A million more Americans die each year than we would have if our country's overall mortality rates matched those of similar peer nations in Europe. A million more Americans a year. Case and Deaton originally believed that these deaths of despair, as they called them, were unique to the white working class in America. But it turns out it crosses all demographics. The common denominator is actually lack of wealth. Deaths of despair are directly related to economic insecurity. Everyone in America who is not in the top 1% is dying at a faster rate than they have in the last 40 years. 
A recent series in the Washington Post stated that the United States is failing at a fundamental mission, keeping people alive. This erosion in lifespan is deeper and broader than widely recognized, they said, afflicting a far-reaching swath of the country. The trail of death is so prevalent, they said, that a person could go from Virginia to Louisiana, then up to Kansas, by traveling entirely within counties where the death rates are now higher than they were when Jimmy Carter was president. What does it mean for us to search for hope, to find hope, in an age of despair, to find hope in a hopeless place. My wife, Andy, and I used to joke that the catchy Rihanna song, We Found Love, was the song that best described our relationship because we started dating during a pandemic. And so that was nicely summed up by the line, we found love in a hopeless place. Some of you blamed me for nothing from nothing, getting in your head. This song will do it too. Found love. You know, it will get stuck there, I promise you. It will help some of you with all the Christmas music that you're listening to. We found love in a hopeless place. Is that still possible? That phrase, it's not just a song for our, our marriage, our lives. It's also the summary of the gospel. The story of Christmas, the hope of creation, the hope of the nations, the hope of all the world was found in a hopeless place. It helps us to remember we're not the first people to live in a bleak and hopeless place. First century Galilee, where Jesus and Mary were from, was also a hopeless place. You know, we know almost nothing about Mary. We get three things from this story. She was young, she was engaged to a man named Joseph, and she was from a town in Galilee called Nazareth. And it's no surprise that throughout history, the church has focused on the two things that in this story are really the least important about Mary, her age and her relationship status. Patriarchy has a profound way of shaping what we think is important when we read a woman's story. But it's obvious even to the casual readers of the gospel that Luke thinks the most important thing about Mary was not how old she was or who she was engaged to, but where she was from. The nativity story of the birth of Jesus begins with this line. We've heard it so many times it fails to mean anything to us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Location is everything in this story. Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee. Think about that for a moment. God decided to start everything to start the incarnation, the movement of love and peace and justice, the new creation, the new humanity, the kingdom of God, the beloved community, the story of salvation and liberation for the entire world in Galilee. Not even in upper Galilee, but lower Galilee. And not in one of the densely populated cities like Sepphoris and Tiberias, but in the tiny town of Nazareth. In first century Galilee, Life was a lot like it is today in Gaza. It's a region known for their resistance 
Its people were known to be revolutionaries. It was a region where if you Google this, this time period in world history and just put into Google this afternoon, Jewish revolutionaries, and you will quickly find names like Judas the Galilean, Zadok the Pharisee, a group called the Sicarii or Dagger Men, the Zealots, the followers of John of Geshala, all of whom were from, you guessed it, Galilee. It may seem strange to you that all first century Jewish revolutionaries came from the same place, but that's because Galilee was an occupied territory. And the Galileans were an oppressed people living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, governed by the proxy rule of King Herod the Great and his son Antipas, known as the Tetrarch whose building projects in Sepphoris and Tiberias were exerting a heavy tax burden and forced labor on the average Galilean family who were already suffering under the weight of tithes and offerings to the temple and the priesthood and the controversial Roman tribute, thereby creating an oppressive threefold taxation system which was leading to extreme poverty, debt, hunger, sickness, and you guessed it, premature death. Mary's fiancé and Jesus' father, Joseph, who we are, are told is a carpenter, was not one of the kind of carpenters that whittles wood in a shed behind their house, as in those Sunday school paintings that you saw growing up. He was probably a construction worker who likely worked long hours in harsh labor on one of Herod's many projects in the city of Sepphoris, which was just a four-mile walk down the road from the town of Nazareth. If there ever was a bleak and hopeless place in an age of despair. It was Galilee during the reign of Herod under Roman occupation. So when the angel Gabriel shows up in Nazareth and says to Mary, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, it's no wonder she was perplexed. It's no wonder she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The Greek here is so much more vivid than the English translation. It says that Mary was greatly agitated by Gabriel's greeting. Wouldn't you be? You can almost hear Mary thinking, favored? What do you mean I'm a favored one? I am a poor peasant girl living in an occupied territory in Galilee. Does it look like I'm favored? I'd be greatly agitated too were an angel to show up to me in that circumstance. And yet, the angel Gabriel's mouth is one of the first to proclaim the scandal of the gospel. God's preferential option for the poor. God's favor on the lowly, on the forgotten, on the outcast, on the marginalized, on the oppressed. Mary's son would later grow up to preach, blessed are the poor outlining that great reversal of fortunes in the upside-down, right-side-up kingdom of God. But long before Jesus ever preached it, Mary received it and responded, Here I am. Let it be. God brings hope to hopeless places. In fact, God brings God's highest hopes to the lowest places and God's greatest hopes to the most hopeless places. If God could bring hope to this place, if God could bring the hope of creation, the hope of the nations, the hope of the world to Galilee, then God can bring hope to all places of despair in the world and in our lives as well. In fact, God has probably already brought the seeds of hope 
to the most hopeless places in our lives and the most despairing places in our world, but we simply don't realize it yet. We don't see it yet. That's because hope always starts so small that we have a hard time seeing it or accepting that it is, in fact, a reason for hope. For instance, a tiny thing embedded in Gabriel's famous annunciation. A number of grand theological phrases appear, but there's a tiny thing that's even more important. Phrases like, son of the most high, throne of his ancestor David, reign over the house of Jacob, kingdom with Eden. Yet, there's something smaller. A single word whose first appearance in the Bible we always overlook due to our familiarity with it. The name Jesus. Yeshua. Do you know what it means? It means God saves. God delivers. God liberates. Salvation and liberation are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. And so the name here of Jesus could mean, could be read, God is liberation. Or God's liberation has arrived. We cannot rush past, we should not rush past what the name of this promised child would have meant to Mary the very first time she heard it. Jesus. God liberates. It would have been a disruptive name, a dangerous name, a subversive name, a seditious name. Jesus is a name that challenges the status quo and the powers that be in the world. Jesus is a name that implies that every form of slavery and oppression is antithetical to God's purpose in history. Jesus is a name that contains God's mission and the message of God's good news for the world. Jesus is a name that entails within it the promise of a whole new world where everyone will be free. All that in a name. After suffering under generations of brutal occupation, experiencing the harsh daily reality of the rule of Herod and the oppression of Rome, to hear the word that God was sending a child whose name would be God saves, God liberates, would have shot through Mary's heart with a thrill of hope. In the eyes of many people, a child is always a sign of hope. And that's what we think is the hope of this story. And so we tend to sentimentalize the news that Mary received at Christmas with songs like, Mary, Did You Know? Yet for a lot of women, especially poor women at that time, the sudden news that they would be carrying a child was not good news. Maternal mortality rates were high. And if you survive childbirth, the economic cost of raising a child in Galilee was a tremendous burden, not to mention the danger of public ostracization that would occur if the child was born before she and Joseph were officially married. For Mary to say yes to Gabriel's request was to risk the possibility of premature death and devastation at every turn. And so we can't imagine that Mary simply said yes because she would receive the gift of a beautiful baby boy lying in a manger. No, she said yes because she was willing to risk her life for the liberation of her people. One of the reasons we struggle to find hope in a hopeless place is that we confuse hope with all sorts of other things, with optimism about the future, with positive thinking. There's nothing wrong with optimism or even positivity so long as it's not the, the toxic kind. It can be healthy and good to have optimism and be positive about life, to believe everything's going to get better or everything's going to be okay, but just don't confuse that with hope. 
Hope is something else, which is why it's so notoriously hard to define because it presents itself as a feeling, an emotion, an attitude, a disposition. But biblical hope is not like optimism or positivity because it has the power to persist regardless of the circumstances. Hope and grief can coexist together at the same time and often do. And this is why writer James Baldwin once said, hope is invented every day. Hope is something we make, something we create. As Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone write, hope is a practice like Tai Chi or gardening. It is something we do rather than something we have. It's a process we can apply to any situation. It involves, they said, three key steps. First, we take a clear view of reality. Second, we identify what we are hoping for in terms of the direction we would like to see things move in or the values we'd like to see expressed. And third, we take steps to move ourselves and our situation in that direction. We all know the third step is always the hardest part and the place where we often fall short of true hope. There's a character in the Marvel Universe named Loki, son of Odin, the god of mischief. He's constantly going around introducing himself with the same phrase, I am Loki of Asgard and I am burdened with glorious purpose. He says this every time he's introduced to someone for the first time. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. However, neither Loki nor the audience watching knows what glorious purpose he's been burdened with. It takes Loki a long time to figure out what his purpose is, and it turns out, in the end, the point was really never what the purpose is at all, but the fact that he believed he had a glorious purpose. It was Loki's stubborn belief that he was burdened with some kind of glorious purpose that was bigger than himself and his own ambitions for his own life that drove him, that gave him hope and strength and desire and passion to keep going and to keep fighting throughout his life and never ever give up no matter what he faced. To be burdened with glorious purpose is what it means to have hope. Gabriel's Annunciation burdened Mary with glorious purpose. Carrying Jesus, delivering the Messiah, raising the liberator of the world, this would all be a heavy, heavy burden. But it was the burden of glorious purpose. Purpose that gave her hope, and meaning, and strength. For Mary, the thrill of hope was the calling and the purpose to be crucial, to be a crucial and critical part of helping God bring salvation and liberation to her people and to the world, Mary said yes to that hope, that calling, that burden of glorious purpose. And the rest is history. And yet the story says that each of us has a role to play in God's story of salvation and the liberation that God is trying to bring into the world. Every one of us has a calling and a glorious purpose. And this can be a tremendous burden, but our calling and our purpose can also be where our hope resides. 
And we need to grab on to any hope we can find right now and hold on to any hope wherever we can find it. These days, the world is filled with so much hopelessness and despair, but God brings hope to hopeless places and wants to bring hope into hopeless places in your life and new life into circumstances and situations that are filled with despair. God always starts small, inviting one person like Mary, who most people would overlook or ignore, inviting them to say yes to the divine call, to find hope and purpose that can change the world. What are you being called to do this Advent? What glorious purpose have you been burdened with? What is your hope? Hope is not just something that we think or feel or possess. Hope is something we make, something we create, something we invent every single day, and something that is born anew every morning when we wake up and say, yes, here I am, and let it be all over again to the call that God has placed on our lives and the unique purpose that we've been given in this world. There's a prayer in the Methodist hymnal. I don't, we don't like things from Methodists here, but there's one prayer in the Methodist hymnal It's based on a scripture from Lamentations. It says this, new every morning is your love, great God of light. And all day long you are working for good in the world. Stir up in us the desire to serve you, to live peaceably with our neighbors, and to devote each day to following Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a beautiful prayer. And that's what it means to say yes every day. If hope is born anew every morning, then that means that last year's hope won't cut it anymore. Last month's hope is not going to get us help with the one that's ahead. Last week's hope isn't going to help us with this week's problems. And yesterday's hope isn't going to work today or tomorrow. We have to make hope, create hope, and invent hope all over again every single day. The hope we make may even be rooted in God or Jesus, but with all the pain and suffering and disappointment and grief and violence we're facing in our lives today, we're going to have to figure out how to hold on to hope in a new way, to hold on to that old hope we had in a new era. But if we can listen to the voice of the angels calling us, if we can take on the burden of our own glorious purpose in God's great drama of liberation and salvation, if we can take on the responsibility to make hope for ourselves and those around us every day, to truly try to practice hope, then no matter what circumstances or situations we face in life, we will be people who can find hope in a hopeless place. Amen.